You are listening to audio from First Baptist Church in Fort Walton Beach. If you would like more resources or to watch our service online, please visit fbcfwb.org. Listen in as Pastor Wade helps us abide in Christ and advance the gospel through the teaching and the proclamation of God's Word. Good to see you all. We're going to be in Psalm 33. Psalm 33, we're continuing our journey through the Psalms. It's been a while since we've been in the Psalms together. We took a break over the holidays. But we are in Psalm 33, wonderful psalm. I'm calling it the Song of the Forgiven. The Song of the Forgiven. Just a quick reminder of what the psalms are about. This this definition comes from Dr. Kendall Easley. He writes, God, the true and glorious King, is worthy of all praise and prayer, thanksgiving and confidence, whatever the occasion in personal or community Life And so the Psalms are a reminder as we read through them that God is worthy of our trust. He's worthy of our praise, whether we are on the mountaintop or walking through a valley. God is worthy. We need to bring our cares, concerns, our lives to Him. And then John Piper picks up on the reality that the Psalms are really a collection of Hebrew hymns. They were written to be used in worship. And he writes, The Psalms are songs, they are poems, they are written to awaken and express and shape the emotional life of God's people. Poetry and singing exist because God made us with emotions, not just thoughts. Our emotions are massively important. And the fact we have the book of Psalms bears witness to that idea. So those are good summaries of the book of Psalms. Let's let's read Psalm 33 together. It's a wonderful, wonderful uh, passage, wonderful chapter. It starts there in verse 1. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with a harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts, for the word of the Lord is upright, for all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. By the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Can I get an amen on that? The people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. 
Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. Let's pray together. Father, we pause in this moment to ask for you to draw near to us, that by the, the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, you might give us understanding, that you might open the eyes of our hearts, that we would see the truths of Scripture and respond to the truths of Scripture. And we'll thank you, Lord, for that grace. We love you and we praise you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, one interesting aspect of Psalm 33 is this. It is closely related to Psalm 32. And let me show you this. Look how Psalm 32 ends. Look in verse 11. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. And so it ends with that idea of rejoicing and shouting for joy. To look in verse 1 of Psalm 33. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits thee upright. So very similar verses uh, that are put together in the Psalter. Some scholars believe that this means these psalms were written to be put together. Now, another bit of evidence uh, to that view is there's no heading with Psalm 33. There is a heading with Psalm 32. Look what it says at the very beginning of Psalm 32. A masculate, that's a musical term, a masculate of David. And so because there is no heading with Psalm 33, but it connects when you look at verses 11 in Psalm 32 and verse 1 in Psalm 33, these are meant to be put together. In fact, uh, these two psalms are joined together in two old Hebrew manuscripts. They, they put Psalm 32 and Psalm 33 together. And the Old Testament scholar James Johnson picks up on this when he writes, Psalm 32 describes the blessing of forgiveness. If you remember way back, we talked about Psalm 32. And look how Psalm 32 starts there in verse 1. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. So it's a, it's a psalm of forgiveness. So Johnston says Psalm 32 describes the blessing of forgiveness. Psalm 33 follows as a song of joy. So in many ways, Psalm 33 is the song of the forgiven. A song of praise for those whose sin God does not count against them. It is a song for you today if you are a Christian. In other words, if you have experienced the complete, full forgiveness of your sins, that ought to produce joy in your life, right? That's why these psalms are so often uh, put together. And what Psalm 33 does for us is it answers two important questions about how forgiven people ought to respond to God. Question number one is this, how should we worship God? How should we worship God? Now, there are a lot of answers to this question that people have. In fact, folks love to fight about how we ought to worship God. People have their views and the ways they were raised or brought up or their preferences. They love to, they love to fuss and fight about this because they think their preferences are better than other people's preferences. And people are fighting about worship preference. A lot of times those discussions really have nothing to do with the Bible. So I'll give you an example. Uh, when I first started pastoring, uh, it, was, it was just it, the way you did it is the pastor sat on the, sat on the stage, the platform, during the song service. 
and you sat there. They had a kind of special little chair for you, looked kind of like a little mini throne. And you sat, you sat on this little chair, and you stood there, and you sang along. Everybody was watching you sing, and I decided I didn't like that. And I decided I'm not going to sit up on the stage during the song service. I'll come up and preach when it's my time to preach. So I sat down on the floor. I had a lady come to me. She says, why don't you sit on the stage during the song service? And I said, I don't like people watching me sing. And she went, oh. And she walked away. She grew up watching preachers sit on the stage during the song service. Is that in the Bible? No. Is there anything wrong with preachers sitting on the stage? Not a thing. Anything wrong with preachers sitting on the floor? Not a thing. It's just a preference. But a lot of times we get, we get caught up in arguing preferences about worship when what we need to do is say, what does the Bible actually say about worship? And the Bible says some things here that are pretty, pretty interesting and a little bit unbaptist. So how should we worship? How should we worship? Waking y'all up on this first Wednesday of 2024. How should we worship God? Number one, fervently. Fervently. Now look what it says there in verse one. Whisper quietly when you are excited about God. No, it says shout for joy in the Lord. Oh, you righteous praise befits the upright fervently. Fervency, excitement, passion in worship comes when joy overflows. That, that's what fervency is. And the idea there is a, is a shout for joy in the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to be loud to worship the Lord. Um, you can be fervent and be quiet. In fact, I've used this illustration before, but my brother is introvert, and I'm, I'm, an, I'm an extrovert. So my brother always hated it through the years when the, the church would say, everybody stand up and shake your neighbor's hand. He would want to crawl under the pew. You know, I'm high-fiving folks, right? You know, and he, he didn't like it. And, and so my brother is a, is a devoted follower of Christ. I mean, he loves the Lord, loves Jesus, but, but you won't hear him getting very loud in a worship service. That's just not who he is. That's just not his personality. But he's fervent. He's fervent. I have a tendency to be louder than he is because I just have a different makeup, a different personality. But the idea here is this, is that there ought to be a joy that overflows from our lives. And William Blakey really calls us on this one. He writes this, listen to this. There are doubtless times to be calm and times to be enthusiastic. But can it be right to give all our coldness to Christ and all our enthusiasm to the world? Looking at you football fans. Let me read that again. I don't think y'all heard what I just said. There are doubtless times to be calm and times to be enthusiastic, but can it be right to give all our coldness to Christ and all our enthusiasm to the world. Would that, is that right? No. Jesus should have the lion's share of our passion and our enthusiasm. And so this idea of shouting for joy in the Lord, praise befits the upright. We ought to worship God fervently. But secondly, we should worship God skillfully. 
skillfully. This is interesting. Look what it says in verse 2. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shout. So he's speaking here of skill really in um, two different areas. One is skill and accompaniment. And so all through the scriptures, we see that God raises up folks with musical gifts that are tasked with accompanying God's people in praising his great name. There's a skill in accompaniment. And it says there uh, in verse 2, give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Now, what is a lyre? Okay, a lyre was a string instrument, had about seven or eight strings. It consisted of a body and a crossbar and sometimes a sounding box, which sounds a whole lot like a guitar. Now you say, why is that a big deal? I've been doing this a long time now, okay? I've had people come to me. I like that guitar on the stage. Well, that's fine. That may be your preference, but let's talk Bible. There's a liar, a string instrument, and, and then there's a harp mentioned here, which has 10 strings on it. Takes it to the next level, but also in other places in the Bible, there are trumpets, cymbals, which are percussion, tambourines, percussion, flute, and other instruments mentioned, which means that God created music and he raises up people with gifts to use those gifts to accompany God's people to praise the Lord who is worthy of our worship. So, so worship should be done skillfully, skill in accompaniment. We ought, to, we ought to rejoice when we see different instruments on the stage. We ought to rejoice in different instruments being used. Rejoice, we see young people learning instruments so they can use those to praise the Lord. Skill in Accompany it, but but also there's a skill here in songwriting because look what it says in verse three. Sing to him. What's it say? A new song, which implies that folks are going to be writing new songs, right? And so there are songs that people write that stand the test of time. And God's people use them over and over and over and over again to praise the Lord and praise His great name. And God, I believe, anoints certain songwriters and certain songs that just that just have staying power in the body of Christ. And, and we love those great songs of the faith. But we also need to realize that God is limitless. And you can't write enough songs to satisfy how great He is, right? And so along with those great songs of the faith that have that staying power and that have ministered to us so much through the years, uh, the Bible speaks of new songs being written, new songs being sung. And it takes skill for people to write songs that could be sung in worship. So there's a, there's a skill here in accompanying God's people uh, in worship. It says, sing them a new song play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. And so this is a picture of skillful uh, worship, how we should worship God. I believe this indicates and or implies that worship should be thought through. 
that, that the corporate gathering of God's people where they sing praises of God, where they gather and focus upon the Lord, focus upon His Word, when that happens, it ought to be carefully thought through. Um, again, I, you know, I, when I first started preaching, I preached in a lot of different churches, and uh, a lot of times worship was haphazard. Some dude walk up to the pulpit and say, hey, what do you want to sing this morning? And uh, somebody said, oh, uh, sing this song. And, and he'd say, he'd point over the pianist and, and she'd be trying to find the song. He'd be trying to find the song and, and people be yelling out in the audience. And it just wasn't thought through. It's like, we want to come and we want to have a plan because we are worshiping the God of the universe. So how should we worship God? Fervently and skillfully. And that's what the Bible says. That's what the Bible actually says about worship. And that's how you and I should pursue worshiping the one true God. But there's a second question that Psalm 33 answers. And the question is, why should we worship God? Why should we worship God? Uh, The rest of this Psalm really gives reasons that should provoke our worship. So let me just give you those reasons and then we'll finish up tonight. First of all, because of what he said. Look what it says there in verse 4. For the word of the Lord is upright. When God speaks, what he says is truth. What he says is dependable. What he says is trustworthy. What he says is reliable. So we should worship God because of what he's said. Isn't it amazing that the transcendent God of the universe has chosen to condescend and speak to you and me? You ever thought about that? You ever thought about how amazing it is that God chose to speak to us by giving us his word? He didn't have to, did he? He could leave us fumbling around in the dark. But he chose to speak to us and give us clear revelation. I read a quote years ago from Carl F. H. Henry, great leader in evangelicalism in the middle 1900s. He said that the word of God carries with it a fresh miracle. Every day you get uh, up and you read the Bible, it's the fresh, you're experiencing the fresh miracle of a transcendent God speaking to you. And that's pretty impressive. So the psalmist here mentions, all right, I heard the ESPN app. Who's, who's got ESPN on? I know Nick Saban retired. I know that. All right. Okay. Just turn ESPN off on your phone. All right. So it says, the word of the Lord is upright. We should worship him because of what he said. God has spoken to us. We should worship him in that regard. Secondly, we should worship him because of who he is. Look what it says in verse 5. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of God. He mentions here who God is, his character, his nature. Notice there mentions that he is righteous. God always does the right thing. God always stands for the right thing. God always says the right thing. God always performs the right deed. God always responds in a right manner. He loves righteousness and justice. He stands for what is right and stands against that which is unjust and which is wrong. And so we should praise God for his righteousness, his justice, his perfect character. But look what it says in verse 5. And this, by the way, separates Christianity from world religions. He loves righteousness and justice 
The earth is full of his steadfast love, the steadfast love of the Lord. That word steadfast love is a Hebrew word, kesed. And the reason that one word is translated with two English words is because it's too rich to be captured in one English word. We can't figure out an English word that captures all that goes into the word kesed. There, it, there's, there's ideas of mercy here and, and, and per- perfect love and faithfulness and, and forbearance and grace. I mean, it's kind of all captured in this word kesed. And so whenever you see steadfast love in the, the Bible, is speaking of the kesed of God, the love, the grace, the mercy, his affection for you and for me. And the psalmist says, he's, he's right, he's just. He always does the right thing. He always is the right, uh, right in right. He always is right in his character and nature. But oh, how he loves you! Oh, how he loves you! The steadfast love of the Lord it fills the earth. That's what it says. So we should worship God because of what He said, His word. We should worship God because of who He is, His character and His nature. Hey, when's the last time? You spent some time worshiping God, not just for what he's done for you. And he's done some stuff. We're going to get to that in just a minute. But just for who he is. Just for his, just for his attributes, his nature, that which makes God God. When's the last time you just thank Lord, I, I thank you that you are perfect, holy, omnipotent, omniscient, sovereign, loving, gracious, kind, patient. When's the last time you just thank God for who he is? But third, we should worship God for what he said, who he is. But third, for what he's done. What he's done. Verses uh, 6 through 20 really speak of what God has done. So look what it says there in verse 6. First of all, what has God done? He created. Verse 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. That is a, an extraordinary statement. He goes on to say, by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. And so God simply speaks, and the heavens come into existence by the breath of his mouth. The, the host, the starry host, comes into the created order. Now, I remind you that God began the creative process with nothing. It's not as if God took some materials and put them together to make the universe. There was nothing except God, and God from nothing spoke everything into existence, which is pretty incredible, right? He created. He created. It says in verse 7, he gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in the storehouse. In other words, the, 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 the churning oceans, the, 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 the raging gulf when a storm comes through is, is, is small from God's perspective. He just gathers it all together. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. So we should praise God because he created Everything we should stand in awe of the created order and what God has made. Secondly, not only has He created, He reigns. He reigns. Look in verse 10. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. In other words, the ungodly love to scheme against God and the people of God. They love to scheme and rebel against Him. 
But he says it just comes to nothing. He's not threatened by the ungodly. He's not threatened by ungodly nations, ungodly leaders, ungodly plans. He's not threatened by that. In fact, he frustrates, verse 10, the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord, his his wisdom, his way of doing things, his truth stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Then it says, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. In other words, when the dust settles, you don't want as a nation to be opposed to God. You want to fear him and serve him and love him and believe in him. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Because if you are in a nation that is opposed to God, What's it say he does? He frustrates their plans. There's no blessing in that. But when a nation loves the Lord, when a nation uh, fears the Lord, it says he, he, he chooses them as his heritage. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. He, he reigns over all, and we would do well to recognize that. Then in verse 13, The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits, he... From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. I remember exactly where I was sitting when I learned this truth for the first time. I was in fourth grade Sunday school, Burton Baptist Church, in the front uh, classroom when you walk in the Sunday school area. And my teacher taught me that God sees everything that we do, and it blew my mind. I I guess I should have known that, but when she told me, I, I went, really, everything? Everything. God sees it all, which means nobody gets away with anything, right? They, you, you might fool another person, but you don't fool God. And everything that's done for the glory of God is seen by God. So he sees everything. He sits enthroned. He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. Then in verse 15, he who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. He made us. And he sees all that we do either in, in worship of him or in rebellion against him. Then he goes back to talking about nations and how nations uh, interact with the Lord. And he says in verse 16, The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope of salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. In other words, he's saying a nation needs to trust in God first and foremost. He is the one who protects. He is the one who preserves. He is the one who watches over. Don't trust in your own strength, he's saying here. Trust in the one true God because he reigns. So we should praise him for what he's done. He created He reigns, but third, he saves. He saves. Look what it says in verse 18. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Now, everybody look at me for a minute. We just read that God sees everybody, right? But then it says God's eye is on those who fear him. So that means that God's eye is on the God-fearing person in a different way than his general knowledge of everyone and everybody. Does that make sense? 
In other words, he looks with a loving eye, a caring eye, a compassionate eye, a a a protective eye on those who fear him, those who have a relationship with him, for those who hope in his steadfast love. Because when you know him, when you trust in him, he delivers their soul from death and keeps them alive in famine. He takes care of them. And then the psalmist here, maybe David, if this is a, a connecting psalm with Psalm 32, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. Our heart is glad in him because we, listen, trust in his holy name. So David here is saying, this God who created, this God who reigns, he's my God. I have a relationship with him. I relate to him personally because I trust in him. And then he calls out to the Lord, let your steadfast love, there's Kesed again all throughout this psalm. Let your Kesed, your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in you. So God sees everything. He sees everyone, but his eye is on those who fear him. Those who have a relationship with him. They belong to him. So when I walk into a... Um, and I walk into a large room, I see a lot of people. But if my, if my children are in there, I look at them a little bit different, right? I'm watching them, make sure they're okay, make sure they're behaving. But I'm watching them, right? I'm watching my kids. And that's the idea here. God sees everything, but he's watching over us in a special way because we have a relationship with him. We trust in him. You say, Pastor Way, what does it mean to have a relationship with this God? Well, we, we read Psalm 33 through the lenses of the New Testament. And we know that this God sent his only son to this earth who came to this earth and died on the cross for our sins and then rose from the grave defeating death itself so that we could be forgiven of our sins because Jesus died for those sins. Our sins could be washed away and we could be reconciled, have a relationship with God. The relationship he talks about in verses 18 through 22. So the way you have this relationship with the one true creator of God is by trusting Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. And so this psalm answers the question, how should we worship God? Fervently, skillfully. Why should we worship God? Because of what he said, because of who he is, and what he's done. I want to close with a quote from Dale Ralph Davis in his book on the Psalms. He writes, Yahweh's people have all sorts of reasons for thanks and praise. Even so, the psalmist prefaces those reasons with a call to praise meant to stir them up to their proper task of giving thanks with vocal and musical vigor. In other words, there's so many reasons to praise God. It ought to capture our hearts and our attention. We ought to engage in worshiping Him because of, because of who He is, because of what He said, because of what He's done. And when you, when you walk away from a worship service and you've engaged God at that level, you, listen, you will walk away changed because you have been in the presence of the living God. And you've actually recognized that with your praise and your worship. And so, 
Psalm 33 is about the song of the forgiven. May we sing that song often. Thank you for listening. We pray you've been encouraged and inspired by God's word. May the Lord richly bless you.